0: Let us pray. O Lord, bless this word that it may be according to your will. May the meditation of our heart be acceptable to you, Lord. May the words of my mouth be acceptable to you, O Lord. Bless us that we may grow to be like Jesus Christ and believe his promises for the transformation of our lives. For we pray it in the precious name of Christ. Amen know it is proclaimed from every corner that we are to think positively about ourselves as human beings. And there's proof because negative thinking, uh, with negative thinking, accomplishment falls off. And with positive thinking, accomplishment increases. But how do we think positively about ourselves without pride and without self-righteousness? without neglecting the needs of others or without even ignoring and even using others because we become the center of all things. We're thinking very positively about ourselves. The ultimate positive thinking is to think that I'm the best. But on the other hand, how can we be humble and yet productive? How can a believer be broken over sin and yet energetic and eager to serve God? How can we know our weakness and yet show strength at the same time? And I believe that the truth of Christ as head and we as his body will help us hold on to, on the one hand, our own own desperate need. But then on the other hand, his unlimited capacity to fill our need. Because he is the head and we are his body. We can walk both in helpless dependence and in an overcoming strength. In helpless dependence and an overcoming strength. In fact, I want to make the point that unless there's the helpless dependence, there won't be overcoming strength. So we can be broken and strong. In fact, we won't be strong unless we're broken. And to truly be broken, we become strong in Him. There's humility and glory found together in the Christian life, always. Never one without the other. Always together, beautifully wedded with Christ. Now, last week we saw how Christ in this passage is proclaimed as Lord over all things. Everything is even under his feet. Total domination. No questions asked. Also, as the last phrase in verse 23 says, he fills all in all. As the NIV puts it, his sovereignty, or he fills everything in every way. His sovereignty extends to every part of this universe, every part of your life, every part of my life. So he's over all, his sovereignty extends to all things, and he's bringing the whole world to the conclusion that he chooses. So he's proclaimed as Lord, but all of this proclamation of Christ as absolute Lord leads up to this statement in verse 22, that this one whose head over all things has been now given to the church. That's the point. We, the church, are the beloved body of this one who is head over all things. What a protector. What a prince that we have who holds all power in his hands and yet has taken us intimately as his body. The point being, nothing can stop him from blessing his people. That's why we're called his fullness. He will fill us and enrich us and and strengthen us in every way. Nothing can stop Him. He is absolute Lord and He is given to His church. Now, that's where we've been. And you might have felt this as we read this passage. The glory and the majesty of chapter 1. And then suddenly, in the very next verse, we descend into the depths. And you were dead. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa! I thought we were talking about fullness and Jesus is Lord. And and suddenly here we are. I think of Kent Hughes who spoke about being on Mount McKinley. 14,495 feet. And he said we were looking over the Sierra Nevada and all the beautiful lakes and the blue sky. And it was amazing. And somebody pointed out that just 80 miles south is Death Valley. 280 feet below where the temperature reaches 134. And it feels like you've just gone from Mount McKinley, bam, into Death Valley here as he suddenly descends into the darkness of our life before God. It's like a shocking change in a movie. We're, we're, we're in glory and breathtaking light and beauty. in the next frame, blackness, darkness, slavery, death, corruption, horror. Now, Paul is purposely bringing those two worlds right together. I mean, he doesn't even take a breath before suddenly we've just des- descended into the chasm from the heights of the glory of Christ. And it's point, he's pointing out the majesty of Christ exalted over all rule and authority and the travesty of man degraded under that rule and authority. You see, those two things are put right by each other. The majesty of Christ exalted over all. But now he's saying, look where you have come from. You were degraded, the travesty of being under that same rule and authority. We are under the feet of evil, and as he's going to say here in chapter 2, he raised us with Christ and subjected that evil under his feet and our feet. That's the point here, is showing that this power that is toward us, this lordship of Christ, here is what it has meant to you personally. Here is how it relates to you in your life history and my life history. That's why we go from Mount McKinley suddenly into Death Valley. Now, always when the scriptures set forth uh, truth... They're applying or or addressing problems that we have. You might say needs that we have. Uh, Brian Chappell in his book on preaching points this out, that every text is addressing particular needs of people. And isn't it interesting that here, Paul, speaking to Christians, takes them back to their history. This is where you were. Let me rub your face in it a little bit. Let me describe you some of the details because you probably don't even realize what was going on in your life, just where you've come from, just what you really are by nature. Let's go into Death Valley. Let's feel the heat. Let's look around a little bit. Now, we have two problems that chapter 2 addresses. One is that we don't know our former degradation. And some of us in this room don't know, perhaps, our present degradation. But then we don't know our real glory in Christ. And that takes us back to what I started. We've got to know where we've come from, but know where He's brought us. Our humility and our glory join together. These are the two problems we have that are addressed here in Ephesians 2. First, we just do not see... What we are by nature. Notice in chapter 2, verse 1, or verse 2, he says that we were following the course of this world, that is, the general movement of the people in the world who are rejecting God and despise his ways, going about business without God. We walked and followed according to that course, but then more grievously, even following the prince of the power of the air. This is referring to Satan himself, the demonic force, but it's fascinating because prince and power are two words taken from chapter 20 um, and chapter 1 where it says that Christ was above all rule and authority. Now he takes those two words and says Christ is above all rule and authority. You were under that rule and authority. You were following that rule and authority. And when he says the prince of the power of the air, it's like talking about the heavenlies, the spiritual realm, but air makes it uh, so that he is right here upon us, affecting us. But then notice what it says, the spirit that is now at work, at work in us. Later in verse 10, what are we called? The workmanship of God. But where did we begin? We were the workmanship of the enemy, of the devil. He was working in us. So in both of these, in in, in this verse, there is a terrible expression of our belonging to, our following, being like, imitating, giving ourselves to. And we might think, well, that sounds a little bit serious. And this doesn't mean that you've committed every sin possible and you've done all kinds of everything imaginable. You've been as wicked as a human being could be. It simply means this, that you at one point and I at one point served at least an idol, either one or the other or several idols, Certain things were first in our heart instead of God, instead of Christ. And that's all that it takes for you to be under the power of the spirit of this world. We think so easily that if I pull away from God and I follow and do my own thing, that I am free. But there is no way to leave the counsel and protection and sovereign, and, and, and the will of God Obeying him without immediately putting your hand, your life, in the hands of the enemy. Because that's exactly what he wants you to do it's pull away from the will of God. Don't trust him with your life. Don't give yourself away to him. But turn away. Go do your, and immediately you're following the spirit of the one who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He is now at work and has you one time friends of ours had left town and their uh, two Dobermen were left in the backyard we cared for them for a couple of weeks and then it was discovered in a trip that we took them uh, when we brought them to the vet and they were going to come get them in a couple of weeks we took them to the vet and the huge male was found to have heartworms the severe case of heartworms. And, of course, they have the picture there of what happens when the heart is chopped full, you know, cannot even function anymore because it's taken over by these worms. It's a horrible thing to see. And you, you know the thought of that being in an animal or even worse to think of that in a human being is just terrible. That these worms have their way. And I had to sit there and hold this Doberman, this strong, panting Doberman, as the man gave it a shot. And I just felt its weight sagged and it died right there because there was no way it could live. And that's such a picture of us eaten up. You see, here's the idea. This is an evil force at work in us by nature. That's where we have come from. And one of our problems is that we don't see that by nature we're like a young antelope in the strong jaws of a lion. And when you see that on TV, it's hard to watch. You hear its helpless cry. You see it struggling, but you know there's no use. The antelope is gone. And you see two more lions already closing in, and you think, that's it for that poor antelope. You see, this is the picture Paul's painting for us. We were dead, you see. Dead, he starts off, in trespasses and sins. There was no hope for us. We were so relentless in our serving evil and and not wanting God that it could be said that we were dead helplessly in the jaws of evil and destruction and death and wrath. He calls us sons of disobedience. And Calvin says this shows that we were addicted to disobedience. What a phrase. Addicted, addicted to disobedience, addicted to neglecting God's will addicted to neglecting the Spirit's work. And because of that, we don't turn to Christ in helplessness. We will turn to Him for friendship, for support, for a band-aid, to make things work a little better in our lives, to make us feel a little better about death. But to cry out for Him from the jaws of destruction, like the blind men cried out to Christ. To see ourselves let down before Him like the paralyzed man on the mat who couldn't even bring himself to Christ. That's what Paul's talking about here. Absolute helplessness. Faith is born out of seeing our desperate helplessness that should humble us at what we are by nature. But we're shot through by self-righteousness and Pride and self-deception, and we also want to think that we can meet him halfway, and we can kind of become worthy, or we can partly repair ourselves before we come. We're so full of self-dependence and self-will, but this gospel is distinctly for the helpless. My daddy was shocked one time when I went to I went to the uh, hospital because. Kay and her parents, and rightly so, were concerned because I was having some pain here, and it kind of was shooting down my arm. So guess what? You better go and check that out, right? So I go, but I find out that it's just a chest wall, and my chest wall was inflamed, just the lining of my chest wall. It had nothing to do with my heart whatsoever. But they gave me some really powerful pain medicine. And so I get home and I had taken one there and I got home and I started in a little while realizing why people like to steal that stuff. Uh, And I start hoarding it, you know, (laughs) thinking... But I called my dad, who as many of you know is a doctor, and I told him what happened, and he said, what, did he give you some Tylenol or something? He said, no, he gave me Percodan. He said, what? He said, I've never had that in my life. I said, why did they do that? And you may have been in some homes when uh, they have the morphine and other things, and they dump it down the commode, because this doesn't just need to go anywhere. It's got to be for the most serious conditions. And that's what the gospel is for. It's for a serious, serious condition. I saw in the recent National Geographic an organization called Operation Smile. And it shows a picture of a a little boy with a cleft palate and... You know how terrible that looks. There's just a hole right there that goes through the palate of his mouth. And his nose is distorted. And his whole mouth is distorted. His teeth don't even come together. And it shows a picture of that little boy restored. You know, Well, when I was uh, maybe 11 years old, my brother and I were wrestling and fighting and jumping on each other with a friend in the den. And he jumps on me. And I was... We're supposed to be holding up some kind of quilt to protect ourselves, but somehow we didn't, and his head just popped in my mouth. Okay, So I had to have two stitches on the inside and two stitches on the outside. But do you think that this organization, Operation Smile, would have anything to do with me? <laughs> hey, uh, I'm going to come and have your surgery. What happened to you? Well, I've got two stitches. You know, No, we do cleft palates. We find little kids in the world that don't have a normal life, that can't eat and they can't breathe and they can't function, and we repair them. You see, that's what the gospel's for. It's for the spiritual cleft palates. But one of our problems is we don't think we have a cleft palate. We don't think spiritually that we are diseased with spina bifida and we need major repair. I love Operation Smile's little... Saying we change lives one smile at a time. Do you think that you would get a kidney transplant if you have one good working kidney? No, it's for those who don't have one. Well, that's why in the new covenant he says, I'm going to take out the heart of stone and I'm going to put in a heart of flesh. Not even a repair job. We're going to throw that thing away. <laughs> It's going to be a life transplant. You need total renewal as a human being. You need utter rescue from your tendency to not follow God, not love Him. And you're going to be rescued. That's why He has to put His Spirit in us. He puts His law in us. He puts his fear and awe in us. All of these things, he does this magnificent saving surgery. But here's our other problem. You see, our first problem is we don't see where we've come from. We don't see our desperation. And if you don't see your desperation, there's not going to be a lot of clinging. And and the point we'll make, too, is if you don't continue to see your daily desperation, you won't be clinging to him as to life itself. And that's one of our problems. It's one of the reasons we don't grow more than we do. So we don't see our humility, but in the second place, we don't see our glory. We don't see that we're more sinful and enslaved than we could imagine, but we don't see also that we're more exalted and liberated than we could have ever imagined. In Ephesians 2 here, the tables are completely turned, aren't they? These people, us, you, he says, were dead. You were part of this group in whom the prince of the power of the air is working. But God, verse 4, being rich in mercy, made us alive, verse 5, raised us up, seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, as one has put it, Briefly, we suffered with him, we arose with him, and we went to heaven with him. I love that. We died with him, we rose with him, and we went to heaven with him. That's what this says, isn't it? You see, Christ in his resurrection, he didn't just come say, here's life. Christ dies. It's not just that he came back to this life. It's like a train, and you set up a little flimsy cardboard barrier in front of a huge locomotive, right? And you're going to stop the locomotive. Well, you know what's going to happen. It's just going to blow right through that cardboard and keep on going. And that, in a sense, is what Christ did. He burst through the bonds of death, not just into this life, but into a whole new realm of life. A whole new realm of victory. He took human beings where we would never been before. In a whole new kind of life. An exalted, glorified life. And scriptures teach that we are incorporated in Him. We are joined to Him so that now we participate in that life even though we still live in the stage of this world. We're not of this stage. We have a life that's brought to us through Christ, and we're bringing it to bear in this stage, this world, so that there are now little pockets of Christ's likeness little pockets of the life of Christ in this dark world, because we died with Him, we were raised with Him, and we went to heaven with Him. So the tables have been radically turned, because in chapter 1, he talks about all ruling authority under his feet. Then he talks about us under the powers of these authorities. And then it says, but he made us alive and now we sit with him. And the implication is, we're not under the thumb of those authorities anymore. There's been a reversal. In wrestling, you've seen it. A guy's got somebody else from the back. And suddenly there's a reversal and a point is scored. Is Now he's got the other guy. Or you've seen in movies, the guy's holding a gun on somebody and suddenly snatches the gun away. Things are turned around. That's what's happened here. The gun's been snatched away. It's been put in our hands. And now we, in Christ, have been set free. It's it's like a platoon that's being beaten back, cut to pieces, heavy casualties, barely hold on, and then suddenly artillery fire tears through the enemy ranks, air support streaks overhead, tanks burst through the bush, and suddenly the enemy is in trouble, not us anymore. And that's what Paul is saying is happening here. Those who were dropping depth charges upon us have now been torpedoed by the power of Christ. And now we have been set free from that place where we were. That dark and damp and freezing, stinking prison with vermin crawling and creeping. And now we've been exalted and put on the throne with Christ. We've been changed. We've been given life. We've been joined with Christ. And here's the application that I want to bring to bear as we close. That faith, when it says in chapter 19, that we're to know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, it speaks in the present tense. In other words we are to be actively believing in the power that is actively working toward us. This power that has not only raised Christ from the dead and seated Him, but it's raised us from the dead spiritually and seated us. But we're to continue to believe in this great power. So we tend to think of our helplessness when we first come to Christ, that we were like a blind man or a lame man or even dead like Lazarus. But faith is always in the present tense. He who is believing in the power and forgiveness of Christ. He who is believing in the transforming power of Christ. And isn't it interesting, if you take verse 19 this greatness of His power that's toward us who believe, and you set it next to Matthew 13, 58, where it says, using the same word of power, He did not do mighty acts of power there because of their unbelief. So my question to us is, are we believing in His power? What should mark us is that every day we see ourselves, in one sense, at the end of our rope, and we have no other hope but Jesus today. Is that how you see your day? You remember, for some of you, you may can remember that first time of conversion where you felt like you were just at the end of everything and Christ found you. Well, that, and I realize we don't have the sense that we're lost anymore. But we still have this sense that we're helpless. In a sense, we're kind of always lost, but we're always found in Him. We're always blind, but we see in Him. We're lame, but we walk in Him. And so our first trusting sets us onto a whole life of trusting Him. Every day of trusting Him. In every event, we trust Him. Every struggle, we trust Him. Every hardship and crushing disappointment, we trust Him. In every relationship, we trust Him. With every responsibility and every success, we trust Him. In every good thing, we trust Him. We're always the helpless ones, rooted in what we were, but what we now are in Christ. And it not only means, of course, that we are depending on Him helplessly, but we are actually expecting Him to do great things in us. We're expecting great things to occur because we know what we have in Christ. We know what we are in Christ. And because we are expectant, having been raised above these powers, then we know I'm no longer under the dominion of evil. I'm in Christ, seated with Him in the heavenlies. I'm no longer damaged goods. I'm His workmanship. That's what I am in Christ. I'm not degraded into a lost life of self anymore. I'm restored for a life of good deeds, as He says. I'm His workmanship. And so, His power exceeds any power that would oppose it, it's greater than the temptations you face. It's greater than the allurements of this world and lusts of this world. His power is greater than the persecutions and afflictions of this world. His power is greater than the assaults of the devil. His power is greater than your weakness. It's greater than your fears. It's greater than your own unbelief and hardness of heart and any destructive desire in you. His power is greater than all. And so you believe Him and trust Him for likeness to Christ. You trust Him, Lord, that I will have a life of prayer. I will trust You, Lord, for self-discipline. I will not give in to being dominated by evil forces. You see, everything that happens in your life that is not according to His will, as you and I give into it and we wallow in it, we do not seek to be free of it in Christ then we're putting ourselves back in the dungeon, in a sense. We're living as though we're not raised anymore. And so I ask you, what are you believing today? What will you believe today? What are you believing Him for? Are you believing Him that His power is working? And I want to tell you, that if you're living independently of Christ, or trying to live independently of Christ, you're living in death. In death. Because our only hope is to be clinging and resting in this great Christ who is our Lord. Let us pray. O oh Lord, we turn to You. We thank You for the exalted position that we have in You We thank you that you sought us and found us enslaved and lost. And Lord, you have incorporated us, joined us to yourself and taken us to heights of glory. And we thank you that as we trust you, we can be humbled by where we've been and what we are by nature. But hugely encouraged, even thrilled, exhilarated for what you are making us in Christ Jesus, for His life is in us. And for that we thank you and give ourselves afresh to your will. In Jesus' name, amen.